Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. With the recent death of Jerry Lee Lewis, the world said farewell to the previously last surviving member of the great rock and roll legends of the 1950s, a group of visionary artists who in a very short time span made an indelible mark on not just American, but overall music history with the mainlining into the mainstream of this mongrel hybrid beast of a musical invention called rock and roll. In light of Lewis's death, it seems only fitting that the curmudgeon rock report take a big step back into the decade that birthed our beloved rock music and analyze its origins musically, culturally, geographically, and chronologically, as well as analyze the artists, singers, songwriters, producers, and overall movers and shakers who brought this distinct African-American music from the American South and infiltrated white America, set the world on fire, and altered the course of popular music forever. Earlier this year, we produced our epic series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, which covered rock music in the 1990s, the decade where the genre made its last stand as a mainstream pop cultural force. Well, that implies that there are three other golden ages, and that all-so-important first golden age, the period roughly covering 1954 to 59, will finally get its due coverage in this two-part series, the first of which you are listening to now. So, grab some pomade and slick up your hair, swivel those hips, practice your duck walk, and get ready to dance at that sock hop where there's a whole lot of shaking going on and where the curmudgeon rock report will bring you the first golden age of rock. Don't care to hear him play a sambo. Ain't too much of that Congo. Not in the mood to take a mambo. So keep a rockin' that piano. So Art, are you ready to boogie-woogie through the origins of rock and roll on this episode? That, that That's a Chuck Berry song, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, that is from rock and roll music, which uh-huh. is uh, as uh, one of the still one of the better songs ever written about rock and roll. Right. And, uh, and so... Yeah, this is an exciting episode for me because, I mean, I'm just absolutely fascinated by what we're calling the first golden age uh, yeah. of rock. I mean, it's just because it's it it's basically it's it's a roll up of everything that was parochial. If you go across the Appalachians, you go down the Mississippi River and then down into Texas and New Orleans and then points east. Yeah, If it was parochial, it got uh, soaked up as part of rock and roll. So, uh, 
uh, rock and roll was like the the sum of all parochials. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty yeah, amazing. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it was you know for a good thirty years it was the, the most dominant pop cultural music form in the U.S. and in most of the world. You know, yeah, until, until uh, hip hop came along. <laughs> yeah, but which which kind of came along in the same spirit, you know, right. and you know a very parochial, and then you know just sort of. You know, you have your pioneers and there's a whole bunch of hybrids and all of that. So, you know, rock and roll keeps repeating itself, just not as, you know, orthodox rock and roll. But no, so this will be exciting. We get to we get to go over some some really great stuff and some really interesting characters. Uh, oh, well. yeah. <laughs> really, really, really interesting characters. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, and not just Little Richard. Oh, Chuck Berry's got some stuff in his closet as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they all do. I mean, you know, poor Fats Domino, he was just too normal, you know? <laughs> I yeah, know. If, 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 he was le- if he was less normal, we'd be talking more about him, you know? Right. right. Yeah, so anyway, uh, so what else is going on with you, man? No, good, good. I'm ready to get in, get in the rock and roll time machine to the 1950s, get to that sock hop. You know, and uh, and uh, grease my hair back and do all that fifties shit. You know, yeah, yeah, ab- ab- <laughs> absolutely. Although, uh, just remember, we're starting with that twenties, thirties, and forties shit yes, to get to that fifties sure. shit. So, sure, sure. very, very deconstructive episode. Uh, sp- speaking of deconstruction, you know that there's such a thing as deconstruction in the parallel universe. There is. Because you just can't get to the parallel universe without some kind of deconstruction, <laughs> namely the destruction of the sp- space-time continuum, which right. allows us to get into the parallel universe. Right. And, you know, longtime listeners of this podcast, the Curmudgeon Rock Report, know that we do this uh, foray where we go into the parallel universe where blue is green and up is down and... Uh, the great stuff is still the great stuff, and the bad stuff is still the bad stuff. Uh, the things that uh, we th- feel should be in the arenas and the stadiums and on the cover of Rolling Stone are there, and all is right with the world and just. Uh, so basically, that's just a long way of saying that we just cover mo- uh, modern albums. On that note, Arturo, uh, what are you covering this week here in Parallel Universe Land? Oh, yeah. Um, If you are into 1990s techno and overall 1990s EDM like I am, then the duo Belief and their self-titled debut album is the jam for you. Uh, Producer uh, Brian Holland and Stella Mosgawa, the latter being the drummer for the indie rock band Warpaint, they have brought forth this wonderful slice of retro techno and ambient house that, while definitely hearkening to the past, it also sounds startlingly fresh, especially compared to a lot of the bland, monotonous, droning, overly mellow electronica that's in fashion now. They have the shifting textures of early Autiker before Autiker got all glitchy and atonal. They have the warmth of Boards of Canada, and they have the subtly driving, pulsing rhythms of the Orb in their from, from their peak early 1990s period. Uh, for those of you out there who listen to songs and not albums and like to use streaming services like Spotify, YouTube Plus, and all that other stuff, tracks to check out, Dreams, Watt, W-O-T, Watt, and the beautifully lyrical Ulu. 
Uh, no, it isn't the most original album you'll hear this year, but it's one of the grooviest and most endearingly charming. Uh, you know, to me, it's, and I think you hit the nail on the head with this one is that there's a lot of this sort of, uh, uh, loungy chill thing mm. that a lot of folks try to approach. And it, it, like you said, it's monotonous and it's kind of icky, um, or, in some cases, like a little just sort of overly dramatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of nice to get this retro yet kind of modern uh, chill kind of record. Again, that that evokes uh, the orb and, and some of that stuff that you got back there. Uh, good good call on Autiker as well. Yeah. Uh, still r- reminds me of one of my favorite lines from a critic ever where uh, John Pirellis calls uh, uh, the Radiohead song, You Might Be Wrong, uh, Autiker as rendered by ZZ Top. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. anyway, uh, yeah, definitely check out uh, Belief, uh, folks. So uh, we're going to shift a little bit there. This isn't house, but it also is something that I think you can consider uh, retro uh, for sure. Uh, this is by a young band uh, called Anxious. And uh, their uh, album, Little Green House, which is surprisingly really, really good, uh, considering. Uh, so, Art, you uh, you and I know Southern Connecticut pretty well, right? Yeah, I lived there for a while. Yeah, you, you lived in Stanford for a while. I have roots uh, up the block in Waterbury, and I've spent a lot of time in, you know, those New York City suburbs in, uh, uh, in the Connecticut side there. And you know, Bridgeport and Danbury and Waterbury. And I mean, I practically, you know, would spend my summers there. But anyway, so, uh, well, you know, wouldn't you know that uh, pop punk or emo or post-hardcore or whatever you want to call it, or hey, maybe just all three are alive and well there in our uh, beloved nutmeg state. Uh, That kind of sounds ridiculous, you know. And uh, when you see publicity photos of the band Anxious, uh, it actually kind of looks ridiculous because it's basically, essentially it's like four dorks and like a dude with the most rock star hair and smoldering eyes ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange uh, sight. Now more on that kid uh, here uh, in a bit and some disclosure. So 20 <clears throat> something years ago, I had an editor at a outfit uh, called Sonic net, which was bought up by MTV when I was there. A uh, guy named Matt Malucci, a uh, good dude. Uh, he also has some Connecticut uh, roots. He worked for the Waterbury paper and uh, also a Syracuse grad. Well, uh, his son, Dante, uh, this is his band. And no, that's not the reason I'm covering them. Uh, <laughs> but it just so happens that uh, Dante is uh, uber, uber talented. I mean, he actually... When uh, School of Rock became a Broadway musical, uh, he was in the original cast as the drummer uh, for the band. And so, you know, he had that kind of uh, that kind of talent. Well, it turns out it's not all just Broadway and drums. It turns out he because he's pretty good emo uh, guitar guy uh, as well. So really, that said, I mean, just trust me when I say that Anxious actually is anything but ridiculous. And, you know, they clearly were well reared on the stuff that was blasting out of Austin and Phoenix and the tri-state area and the Pacific Northwest uh, back there at the turn of the 21st century. Uh, And they celebrate their beloved blasted out pop of yearning and confusions on their, again, really surprisingly great debut album, Little Green House, uh, which was released on one of the best labels releasing their type of music right now, Run For Cover. 
Uh, now, a common thread through the life of this podcast, we haven't exactly put this as an edict, but it comes up a lot, is that there's a fine line between being reverent and being derivative. Uh, derivative. Uh, like I said, being reverent versus being derivative. So fine, uh, let's get this out of the way. Uh, these young members of Anxious are obviously fond of Fountains and Wayne, uh, Fountains of Wayne, and Texas is the reason, and Jimmy Eat World, and Early yeah. Weezer, yeah, Early Weezer, and Early Death Cab for Cutie, and Ugh. and Not a Surf, Ugh. and even some of the screamier bands of their era like Hum and You Will Know Us by the Trail of Dead. Uh, this is a hyper melodic, melodic, and just plain hyper uh, 32 minute set of 10 tunes. Uh, but here's the thing. Now, we know loud, uh, loud uh, will never go out of style while the earth continues to fill with rebellious, sensitive adherents of electric guitars. But loud, accompanied by really strong and at times excellent songwriting, uh, performance and recording is becoming rarer as TikTok and SoundCloud and other social media platforms inspire the quick fix, literally, uh, to glory. So now let's, we need to celebrate Anxious. Uh, band leaders Dante Malucci and uh, Grady Allen really are talented kids. And I do mean kids because Dante Malucci is 19 years old. And they, but they sure as hell don't sound like kids though. Like really, like that kind of kiddish. Uh, these songs are pretty damn thoughtful and well-structured and well-played. And they're also extremely well-produced. I mean, this is some really ready. A few of these songs are really radio ready and radio friendly, which you wouldn't expect from this kind of, you know, they, they you know, there's one of these bands that are, you know, they have like friends and other like emo bands you've never heard of and, you know, tour in vans and probably make like 20 bucks a show. But so it's not the kind of thing you would expect from a band and of, of this um, of, of this stature, at least at this point. I mean, look, I mean, the, the two part harmony on the chorus to this uh, intense yet lovely song called In April is a bona fide two part harmony. Uh, now, Grady Allen, he's also a guitarist for a more well-known sister band called One Step Closer. They're also on Run For Cover. Uh, he's more naturally screamy, uh, but that's countered by Malucci's prettier accompaniment. Um, you know, it could be that they're also listening to the Beach Boys and the Everleys and uh, Fleetwood Mac and bands like that, too. You know, neato. Uh, what I like about this record, though, is that not just that it rocks in the way that I like my rock to, you know, rock. Uh, it also takes a few chances, uh, veering into some acoustic tenderness on the earnest ballad Wayne and ending the record on an oddly compelling adult contemporary note with the song You When You're Gone, on which Malucci proves to be a lyricist and songwriter of unusual depth. I mean, when I was 19, I was singing Neil Young songs whilst drunk without a clue of what, you know, those lyrics or what he was really saying but I have a feeling that Malucci has a clue and then some. Uh, it may not be the coincidence that the album ends with you when you're gone. Uh, it's a sharp turn uh, from the rest of the record. It's more spare. It's more professionally clean and more tenderly rendered, but just as tight. And yeah, there's also the guest female vocals uh, on there too. Now, ironically, uh, it's this song that most evokes the radio stylings of 15 or 20 years ago. And hey, it's actually better than anything really ever licensed its way onto Grey's Anatomy uh, back in the day. I mean, 
that's not really damning with faint praise, but it's the kind of thing that may be you would have expected to show up on TV back then, back when like people still gave a shit about rock bands. Um, now that tells me that anxious can be more than just a genre band, uh, which even positive reviews I've seen of this record, like, uh, in places like Pitchfork and Stereo Gun, they seem to peg them as one of these emo uh, power pop bands. Essentially, yeah, again, essentially they are, uh, but they seem to have that potential uh, for growth. So, you know, really, I am excited to hear what comes next. You know, maybe it'll take a happy TikTok accident to break them big, uh, which sucks because there really is a lot of talent, ambition, and professionalism here. Uh, one of the better records I've heard all year. You know, I, you've heard me say, Aaron, on this cast that this has been the year of the pretty good. Well, this is one of the few albums that's actually better than pretty good. Uh, great, not quite, uh, like great, great, not quite, but really, really, really good. Uh, I'm wondering if you may not agree with that. Absolutely generic, cliche, emo bullshit. This album sucks my fucking balls. I hate this record. As soon as I heard it, I was skipping tracks and skipping tracks and skipping tracks. It's like, I mean, do do the and I'm going to call them kids. Do these kids know it's the year 2022 and not 2000? <laughs> yeah, but but, th- but that's one. But that's the reason I like this band. Yeah, yeah, I know. But oh, I think it's rubbish. Absolute horrid. Um, it's, I've never liked emo in general. There are very yeah. few exceptions, uh, for me. Um, Connor Oberst's side project, Desaparecidos, uh, oh, yeah. um, after drive-in, you know, there's, but there's not much emo that I've ever liked. Um, this is fucking horrible. This is really well, bad. <laughs> well, I mean, mentioning at the drive-in, I mean, that's just an insult. They, they were never an emo band. They were just a, basically a metal band. But well, no, I, I, at the drive-in, were pretty emo. They, 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 they definitely were, especially with the vocals, especially with the, you know, the, the kind of guitar playing they had. You know, emo is post-hardcore, really. Yeah, um, I, I, so. I guess you can say that. Now, I mean, look, the closest compare to in my man, mind uh, to this band is Jimmy Eat World. And, you know, I mean, I've always liked Jimmy Eat World more than than you have, uh, you know, and th- they were a pretty good band. But like I said, I think that this stuff is pretty varied and I'm actually really impressed uh, with the professionalism and the talent of it. And I do think that, yes, you're right, that it it took me a few listens. This was a grower and it's been growing on me for the course of like, like six weeks, two months now. Uh to the point where it actually elevated uh, to the status of, uh, you know, deserving a shout out on this podcast. Um, Just, I said, just surprisingly good stuff for a bunch of 19 and 20 year old kids. Hey folks, it's Chris. One of the things we've learned over the life of the Curmudgeon Rock Report is that if you want to build a better podcast, it's a really good idea to listen to other podcasts. It not only keeps us on our toes, but hey, there's a lot of fascinating information out there in podcast land presented by lots of fascinating people. Here's one podcast that I've been vibing on lately, Cocaine and Rhinestones, The History of Country Music. Host Tyler Mayen Co., the son of rebel songwriter David Allen Co., spins really good yarns about the fables, legends, and characters that have dotted the country landscape since its very beginnings. This includes a few tales that are just so insane, yet you have to know that they're true. 
The main reason to listen to Cocaine and Rhinestones, however, is an intermittent series of episodes of the saga of George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Co. has a straightforward, deadpan narrative style that helps you appreciate just how wild these two country icons were. The more you listen, the more your jaw will drop over just how addiction overtook the mind of George Jones. So right after you're done listening to us, check out Cocaine and Rhinestones. It's available at all the places where you find all of the other podcasts. So, Art, uh, as part of this... The ex- one of the excitements for me is I got to sort of uh, dig in some of my old books by the author Peter Goralnik, who's probably the greatest chronicler of this sort of early uh, rock slash roots music. He he uh, wrote the definitive two part biography of Elvis Presley. Awesome and, books. Yep, and the definitive biography of Sam Cooke, and he did a whole bunch of other uh, uh, writings on country, early early country western and blues. Uh, songs, all that. But uh, here's a great book, uh, a great quote from his book, Lost Highway, that pretty much says it all about the uh, the the origins and sort of the, the evolution of rock and roll or the early evolution. He says, uh, quote, the music that was recorded black and white represented a rural lifestyle gone to the city. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect way of putting it. Uh, it I, I will definitely touch on that very soon. <laughs> sure. And and then from there, the only other comment I'll make, and then I'll turn it over to you. The common thread in most of this, the electric guitar. Oh, yeah. Take any, <laughs> take any one of those parochials I talked about before, uh, plug in an amp, and yeah, yeah uh, it becomes rock and roll. Yeah. All right. So... How did this whole fucking thing start? <laughs> well, that, gee, that, that, that's a fair question. <laughs> so this is how, well, let, let's go way, way back. In the first half of the 1940s, the post-Great Depression socioeconomic climate of the United States saw a mass migration of people, both white and black, uh, generally move up north from the southern region of the country to large cities in the Midwest, Upper Midwest, and the Northeast. What drove these large swaths of people, what drove them up North? Manufacturing and factory jobs. And lots of them. Tons and tons of manual labor work. What was going on that spurred on all this manufacturing? A little old thing called World War II. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor in Hawaii in 1941 dragged America into the war, belatedly, if you ask some British people and Europeans, (laughs) uh, patriotism in the form of war fever gripped the country. With that came a military demand, a demand that eventually became beneficial for the national economy, but a demand nevertheless for planes, tanks, jeeps, boats, guns, and all kinds of machinery and every kind of mechanical and metallic component that went with them. War was indeed big business at this time, even a justifiable war. Uh, I mentioned earlier the migration of manual laborers from the South. These people tended to be of all types and ethnicities, but during this time, whites and blacks were the most predominant. So for the sake of explaining rock and roll history, let's for now focus on the African Americans of this period. Uh, I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of these labor workers were, on the socioeconomic scale, solidly working class or lower. 
for black people of this time, musical preferences tended to reflect where they came from regionally and were nominally gospel and any kind of related religious music, jazz, blues, and folk. The latter two being inextricably tied and often overlapping with each other. It's the blues, however, that we need to focus on. Uh, that, along with folk, was the easiest style of music to play. All you needed was an acoustic guitar, your own voice, a tale of woe and or heartbreak, and voila, you've got the blues. Mm -hmm. uh, it's impossible to quantify exactly how many or even how much of a percentage of these migrating black laborers were amateur blues musicians. But considering the plethora of artists whose records were released by various record labels from the late 1940s to the mid-1950s, it's safe to say a shitload. Uh, um, blues was and is even to this day a kind of music that was played in clubs and bars uh, and in the South. Uh, and uh, in the South, you had all these small clubs and juke joints where blues were played, right? However, the clubs and bars in the large Midwestern and Northeastern cities tended to be, well, really large and attracted mm -hmm. large amounts of people. It was hard for, for blues singers to have their voices, no matter how powerful they were, and their intricate guitar picking have that all being heard over the din of drunken voices and overall nightlife. Enter amplification. Acoustic guitars were switched to electric guitars, stand-up basses were employed, and for maximum effect, drum kits. At the time normally reserved for jazz bands, drum kits were now utilized to not only give the blues more volume, but to make it more rhythmic you know, for lots of people in big clubs to dance to. So primal, persistent, sweaty, groovy, and raw R&B in its original form, meaning rhythm and blues, was born. And an exciting new form of music started to take Black America by storm. Starting in the middle of the 1940s, several notable artists in different parts of the country started to get noticed by small record labels, several of whom had major label distribution. And they were signed, and these artists would eventually release records, mainly in the form of singles, that would become seminal and historically important in the development of blues and rhythm and blues. Uh, most notable was Muddy Waters, recording for Chicago's Chess Records, Yes, Waters became known as one of the greatest blues artists of all time, but it's important to note that in his time, he was known as rhythm and blues, as a rhythm and blues artist, for sheer virtue of his playing electric guitar and having a full band, bassist and drummer, behind him. Uh, Chess also released music by the legendary and influential singer Howlin' Wolf and uh, whoever happened to be, whoever he happened to cobble together as his backing band. He had millions of bands. Um, other notable blues artists who crossed over to the R&B side of things were Detroit's John Lee Hooker over at Los Angeles's Modern Records, Jimmy Reed at Chicago's VJ Records, and Elmore James, who didn't even make it to the North or to the Midwest, but was so inspired by the new electric blues sound that uh, he became an R&B star on Jackson, Mississippi's Trumpet Records. Elmore James, by the way, if you don't know, um, the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, slide guitar players ever. If you like yeah. the Almond, if you like the Almond Brothers and Dwayne Almond, 
go check out Elmore James. That's where yeah. Dwayne Allman got his shit from. That, Chris, pretty, any other yeah. any other greats from this period of the real R and B quote unquote that you like? Yeah, I mean, there's Willie Dixon. Uh, sure, and and then you got to remember. I mean, a lot of this to kind of add to uh, what you're saying that yeah, there's the blues and there's rhythm and blues, but right. there's there's a commonality to all of this, and it seeps into a lot of different forms. But there's it all comes from a style of music uh, that was predominant in the South. Yeah, uh, it was a black uh, that went all the way back to the 1880s called boogie woogie. Right, and this is a really common thing. I mean, it seeped over into big band music, and if like we'll talk about that later. But like big band had a big influence on some of these folks that uh, uh, that are the really like the seminal acts and like the the big time uh, acts. And so I think a lot of it sort of uh, comes out of that. I mean, you you, you basically named uh, you know the folks uh, that sort of came out of that uh, uh, out of that. I mean, I think that another name worth mentioning uh, here because I think that she was part of this. Mm. Uh, she's more gospely, but Sister Rosetta, Rosetta Tharp. Yeah, uh, you know, and uh, who embraced electric guitar and embraced jump blues. Yeah. To basically, you know, to be a holy roller. She was going into like the devil's nightclubs to sing about Jesus. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, like I said, a strange history uh, at all. And you get the nail on that. It's that migration and all points along it, basically Mississippi up to Chicago. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, New Orleans never really left New Orleans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but from there, like everything else is an offshoot of the Mississippi River. I mean, it kind of starts in Mississippi and uh, Boogie Woogie actually uh, kind of developed uh, really Marshall, Texas, actually, uh, was up there in the northeast uh, corner of Texas. So like that in Texarkana and Arkansas and, you know, uh, we'll talk about it later, St. Louis, sort of all these, you know, Kansas City, all these points along uh, the Mississippi became hugely, uh, hugely important. So, yeah. yeah. And if it wasn't for Chicago, you probably don't get the amps. Right. You know, like you right. said, it's, it's these, it's these back porch bluesmen's that actually needed now to be heard. So right. good All point. Right. So, so how did this rhythm and blues become rock and roll? Okay. Good question. Now it's impossible to talk about the roots of rock and roll without talking about race racial issues, and even racial segregation. In the first half of the 20th century, any music that came from African-American culture, mainly jazz and blues, was deemed as quote-unquote race music. Yep. Uh, By the end of the 1940s, once rhythm and blues became a legitimately popular genre that sold a bunch of records, the record industry decided to track the sales of best-selling artists and singles by creating the national R&B chart. Unfortunately, this did little to dissuade the white mainstream of society to call any music by black people race music. Uh, This would take another decade and a half to end. So why do I bring up race in regard to the music? Well, here's where the story gets juicy. Not, Not every black factory worker with a musical soul who initially migrated from the South became successful in the rhythm and blues game. Uh, Once the war ended, quite a few of these aspiring blues and R&B folks went back to the South. They went back home and they brought this new sound with them 
a new electrified, danceable version of the blues, if you will, which is what rhythm and blues is. Uh, this coincided with actually maybe produced uh, the growth spurt and proliferation throughout all the southern states of clubs, bars, and juke joints that entertain people, mostly black, with the charging sounds of hot and sweaty R&B music. <laughs> Herein lies the birth of what became known as the Chitlin Circuit of bars and clubs where countless blues, R&B, and eventually rock and roll artists cut their teeth and honed their chops, many of whom before they went on to greater, uh, greater fame. Why was it called the Chitlin Circuit? Well, Chitlins are a very, in the South, uh, a Southern region of the United States, it's a uh, very popular dish. For those of you who don't know, Chitlins means pig intestines. Uh, hmm. Like I said, popular in the American South, as well as here in South Korea, where we call it Sunday. In any yep. case, the bars, clubs, and juke joints that made up the Chitlin Circuit in the immediate post-war South proved to be an experimental Petri dish for enterprising and ambitious R&B musicians and artists. Now, if blues and R&B were the predominant musical genre for Black Americans in the South, what was it for white Americans in the South? Country music. Now, for yep. those of you who are only familiar with the uh, overly commercialized, overly homogenized, soulless vapidity of modern country music that comes out of the Nashville establishment, old school country music has a lilting swing to it. And the best of it has some beautiful narrative storytelling. It's those two key elements of country music that started to get injected into R&B by various artists and musicians throughout the South, seemingly at the same time. Uh, in chemistry, two seemingly harmless compounds can be mixed together to create an explosive combination. Well, add the sashaying swing and acute lyricism of country music to the primal, raw sexual energy of R&B, and you get this explosive concoction called rock and roll. It's impossible to pin down um, the so-called creation of rock and roll to one person. It was a regional phenomenon that developed and sprouted in different parts of the South through a slew of like-minded musicians and artists, many of whom ran into each other, knew each other, and borrowed from each other quite liberally. Yes, very much borrowed from each other. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what we can generally identify, however, is the time period when rock and roll started to be recorded and played on local slash regional R&B radio stations throughout the country that cater to black audiences. That would be the early, early 1950s. Not that it was called rock and roll back then, mind you. It was just considered a different kind of R&B. If rhythm and blues is a different kind of blues, this was a different kind of rhythm and blues. As for the phrase rock and roll itself, that's more of a complicated story. If you want to get real literal, way back in 1934, white vocal jazz trio, the Boswell Sisters, sang mm. a song called Rock and Roll in the film Transatlantic Merry-Go-Round. Frankly, I, found, I find it doubtful that a lot of black people on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder in the South watched or were familiar with that film. Uh, a more likely source can be found in both the blues and gospel music. The notion of rocking, quote unquote, was normally associated with dancing, 
or losing oneself to the music. And there are several examples of that word being used in both old blues and old gospel songs. Uh, back in 1942, well-known music journalist Maury Orodenker, writing in Billboard magazine, described the great gospel singer, Sister Rosetta Tharp, the person you mentioned earlier, Chris, her song, Rock Me, he described it as, quote, rock and roll spiritual singing. Hmm. Yet dig the possibility that a white Jewish critic may have coined the phrase rock and roll. How about that? Go, go figure. Yet yeah. dig deeper and you'll find the expression rock and roll really was a Southern black colloquial term for sex. Yes, rockin' and rollin' meant fucking. <laughs> um, yep. You can find that term in the song 60 Minute Man. Gee, I wonder what he's doing for 60 minutes. <laughs> uh, a major 1951 R&B hit by the Dominoes, where the singer salaciously sings, I rock em and I roll em all night. Hint, he ain't talking about rockin' and rollin' dice. <laughs> nope. No, he, it, there's no dice in the making of, of, of this here rocking and rolling. Yeah. We'll talk more in length about the legendary Cleveland radio DJ, Alan Freed, and his contribution to the popularizing of rock and roll in the next episode. But for now, let's just say he was a true fan of black music who, via the music, was very much in tune not only with trends, but with the colloquial vernacular used by the many black musicians coming mostly out of the South during this time. It was in 1951 when he started playing this new mutant strain of swinging R&B on his radio shows, and he referred to it as rock and roll. It spread like wildfire from there. Chris, I've spoken a lot about how the infusion of country swing into rhythm and blues resulted in rock and roll, but there are other more subtle elements that went into this concoction. Tell us. Yeah, you know, ab absolutely. Uh, and like you said, I mean, I think you hit like the main uh, notes with the sort of the the, the country uh, uh, and uh, blues uh, influences kind of, like I said, you know, it was like they had the mutant child. But yeah. there are, I, I think there's a few things that we need to bring up. And it really goes back earlier. I mean, you got to you got to go back to the 20s uh, for some of this. Mm. Uh, there's a forerunner to the country uh, Western of like, you know, Hank Williams and some of those folks. And uh, that was Western Swing. And uh, I guess what was known as Hillbilly, that's right. what they called it, Hillbilly yeah, music. It, it was and, called, yeah, in Chuck Berry's time, he called it Hillbilly music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even before that, I mean, you're talking like Jimmy Rogers and Ernest Tubb, who was the Texas troubadour. Yodi Loli, all that yodeling yep. shit. <laughs> yes, yeah. He was the blue yodel guy. Uh, there's Bob Wells. Uh, who's a tremendous, he's a fiddler. Uh, and so you get a lot of that. And a lot of that stuff is very waltzy, but also just kind of has this uh, whooping spirit and has a lot of that sort of, you know, it's not just sex, but love. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then it got a little theatrical because from the Western swing is where you get the uh, movie era singing cowboys. Mm. Uh, the most famous one of these is, of course, is Gene Autry. And uh, he comes up a little bit later in this episode. One of the great happy accidents in the history of rock and roll uh, involved uh, uh, a Gene Autry uh, song. And so uh, we'll get to that. So there's that. And then you really then you have gospel gospel, not just uh, the Rosetta Tharp uh, sort of sped up version of it. Uh, but uh, 
I guess in some ways you can call rock and roll anti-gospel because yeah. a lot of these folks were reared in the church. Yeah. And I think the appeal of, you know, rocking and rolling, uh, otherwise known as fucking. And, yeah. you know, some of, some of this stuff, it was like an anti-gospel in the sense of, you know, you were, it was a rebellion based on what you knew, yeah. but the singing styles, I mean, even Elvis, I mean, you know, there's a quote that says, you know, he, uh, you know, his singing style is a combination of rhythm and blues and country and Western, but really gospel. Yeah. And he, you know, he, he attributes to that. And, you know, I got to thinking, you know, the, uh, the old song blue moon of Kentucky, the old bluegrass yes. song by yeah. Bill Monroe. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, it's a bluegrass song, but, but the, uh, the melody, yeah, that's a gospel song. Yeah. And so it, that really kind of gets into that, you know, even like the Mahalia Jacksons of the world. I mean, they had a huge influence. Like Mahalia Jackson was a big influence on Rosetta Tharp right. and actually it was a big influence on Elvis. Um, doo-wop. We have to talk about doo-wop. Um, doo-wop was essentially it's an urban creation uh, that was uh, inspired by some of the early rhythm and blues that was happening in the forties. But what what this was, it's a and you know doo-wop. It's not necessarily a cappella, but it's these four and five part harmonies. Uh, made by uh, relatively poor, uh, uh, mostly black men from cities like Baltimore was a big hub for doo-wop. Um, New York. Yeah, New York, obviously, and then a couple of other Midwestern towns. But but like basically Baltimore, D.C., uh, Harvey and the Moongos, which is a latter-day uh, doo-wop uh, no, later on, but they were D.C. So D.C., Baltimore was like the, have, you know, the Ravens, you know, if it was a bird, the Orioles, the Ravens, they all came from Baltimore. But it's a curious mix because what they were doing was they were they were taking uh, the, the, the dramatics and dynamics of Tin Pan Alley and barbershop quartet stuff, mm. you know, like basically the most corny theatrical white music, and they <laughs> tweaked that as and stylized it for city black folk, and gave it and gave it some soul. <laughs> yes, and gave it some soul, and then there was a lot of onomatopoeia that went on onomatopoeia, not yeah. pita, uh, <laughs> uh, that that went on here too because you know they didn't have instruments, right. and so you always had the guy do 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 yeah and. And that actually, and obviously that had a big influence later on with like, you know, the, the, the surf bands, uh, right. you know, the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean and all of that. And so, so you have, so in terms of the vocal stylings of that, in terms of the, uh, the sort of the aesthetics of that, and basically what a lot of rock and roll did was it took a lot of that kind of, uh, dramatics of doo-wop and sped it up a little bit. And you get a lot of that sort of early, early pop uh, there. Uh, I mentioned Boogie Woogie. Uh, definitely have to, to mention that. Uh, I also think that, that Skiffle is worth mentioning. Now, yeah. Skiffle, you know, we talked about this a little bit in our Grateful Dead episode. Uh, Skiffle is actually, it's defined by, it's, it was basically like the earliest form of jam band music, but it was played on all these homemade instruments. Right. You know, it, it ba basically, it's, it's a variation of jazz. It came out of New Orleans, actually. Yeah, but it was like washboards and jug bands. Yeah. And, or, yeah. or, you know, it was like, you know, what, like jugs and uh, washboards and like uh, basin tubs. And, and you're taking that kind of stuff and getting uh, instrumentation out of that. And so it's basically like a representation of New Orleans jazz. But done on all this homemade stuff, <clears throat> and obviously, 
you know, a lot of the British bands, uh, Skiffle became a big thing in Britain, and that eventually leads to, no joke, Jimmy Page was uh, uh, started off in Skiffle Band. Yeah. The Beatles started off as the Quarrymen. Uh, yeah. And so uh, you have to mention that. And then last but not least, and this is a big deal, uh, big band. Mm. And, you know, like Duke Ellington, but also like Tommy Dorsey and... Uh, you know, Glenn Miller and, and some of, uh, some of these folks. I, like I, the I, I, I would say Count Basie more than some yeah, of those. Yeah. Because Count, Count Basie's swing music, his swing jazz music was very, very bluesy. Listen to Count Basie. He was, oh, the, yeah. he was the most blues based out of all those jazz guys. Oh yeah. But, but he also, he was a total adherent of Boogie Woogie. I mean, he, yeah. of, of all those guys, he was the most Boogie Woogie. I'm just making a point that it also yeah. croaked. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it crept over into white, uh, into the white big bands as well. Right. And, you know, I mean, I've, uh, you know, to give you a preview, Chuck Berry basically said that he was doing big band music cranked up with electric guitar. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so he kind of, so that's, that's an obvious, uh, influence, uh, uh, there as well. So there's lots of that. And then, uh, one final comment, uh, in terms of the rhythms of rock and roll and, and, and country music and, you know, the stuff that came out of like Memphis or anything like that, uh, we have to say that one of the legacies of the locomotive mm-hmm. in America yeah. are the rhythms and beats of rock and roll. You know, think about it. Chug, 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 you know, yeah. uh, Oh, and then like, you know, Boogie Woogie is joke, 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 you know, uh, right. like, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of disparate, uh, uh, you know, influences. On this episode, Chris and I brought you part one of the first golden age of rock, where we discussed the origins of the genre in the American South and how it grew and was nurtured by African-American culture. For the next and final installment, part two, we will delve into how rock and roll crossed over to the mainstream of American popular culture. What started as a grassroots movement in the South was soon co-opted by corporate America, and black music was given a white face and sold to white teenagers. But hey, some of this music was really freaking good. The importance of Sun Records and early Elvis Presley is discussed as well as Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, the Everly Brothers, and a whole bunch of underappreciated rock and roll greats from this era, both white and black. Join us next time as we conclude the first golden age of rock. All right. Chris and I, for all you listeners, um, in this episode of this first gold, part one of the first golden age of rock, we have identified who we believe are the main four early black pioneers of rock and roll. But before we go into those people, these four guys who we consider to be the four pivotal African-American artists who not only pioneered early rock and roll on the radio, but popularized it on a grassroots level before a certain white guy from Memphis, Tennessee would make it explode into a pop cultural phenomenon. That'll yeah, be pretty next much. Ep- that's next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, let's give some shout outs to some individuals and groups who deserve some recognition as well, as well uh, for, for helping pioneer rock and roll. Chris, Big Joe Turner. Yep, Big Joe Turner uh, was a uh, guy was so good. He never really changed up his style, but uh, you could fit him into any genre you wanted to over this course of like 30 years. 
basically started out doing like uh, boogie woogie and then he became rhythm and blues. Then he became blues. Uh, then he became rock and roll. Uh, just a, you know, really, you know, really talented uh, vocalist and uh and songwriter and, you know, charismatic, uh, performer. Uh, he started off as big Joe Turner by the seventies. He was huge Joe Turner. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he had gotten quite obese, but, uh, like I said, great showman had some uh, early songs. I, I mentioned one of them earlier Roll, I, I believe I did Roland Pete. Uh, uh, Roland Pete was the song that he did with, uh, another one of these early boogie woogie guys named Pete Johnson. If you listen to it, uh, yeah, I think Chuck Berry had an influence on that. It had that same kind of, uh, you know, like, you know, think about some of the the uh, the rhythms of some of the earlier uh, Chuck mm. Berry songs. You can find it in the work of, of Joe Turner. That's all right, mama. That's all right with you. Elvis's first big hit. That's a big Joe yep. Turner song. Yep. Yes, it is. <laughs> he wrote yes, that. It, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, it is. And it, yeah, it has that kind, yeah, that, that, that kind of flavor and that kind of sexuality to it. Yeah. Yeah. So re- right. really good stuff. Another one deserves a shout out. Ike Turner. Yes, that Ike Turner. Yes. Well, 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 before he was beating the crap out of Tina Turner. Uh, oh, oh, wait a second. Allegedly, although I think he's said it. Yeah. Um, he uh, he was kind of a big, you know, in a way it was kind of like a rocking big band. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times folks uh, credit uh, a song that he released called Rocket 88 as uh, the earliest uh the earliest rock song uh and again you know ike was a talented guy but in in, in a lot of ways he was a, he was a band leader and he, you know he was a combination uh blues guy and uh just more just basically classic rhythm and blues and so he just sort of you know he was about like what 51 52 was when he was active now i disagree that that could count as the first rock song. I think we're going to cover that in a little yeah. bit with one of our four, uh, with one of our four artists, but yeah, yeah, I, I definitely had an influence on the formation of how, uh, you know, the, how rock and roll was arranged and, uh, the tempos and we, he was kind of in that, uh, cross section of, it wasn't quite rock and roll at that point, right? but it was really close. Yeah, definitely. Another one, they're a group. The Orioles and not the baseball team from Baltimore. Nope, 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 not the baseball team. The Orioles. Uh, this was uh, one of the great, uh, I think, the greatest doo-wop group of all time. Probably the most influential one. Uh, they go back all the way to 1947. Uh, they have a, a wonderful song called It's Too Soon to Know, which uh, pretty much influenced all of the doo-wop that came after it. Uh, like I said, just a very dramatic uh, sense uh, of you know, you know how to perform uh, that with these wonderful vocal arrangements and uh, a little bit of uh, jazz guitar accompaniment uh, to it. And so it's basically, like we said, it's rural rhythm and blues as rendered by uh, uh, black men from the city too broke to afford their own instruments. And so... <laughs> Just real, real, really ingenious uh, uh, stuff, and so you know from the Orioles, you know you get then you get the Penguins, and then you know eventually you get like you know fucking like Neil Sedaka and uh, the Beach Boys, and <laughs> and you know you get some of those like Frankie Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, you know it it, it kind of leads itself, and so there's a string of rock and roll that starts uh, from the Orioles. 
that, you know, actually, if you think about it, it's kind of like the Chuck Berry stuff slowed way, way down and done much cheesier. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah and the last uh group i'll mention before we go on to the early black pioneers i already mentioned them earlier the dominoes and they had that big hit uh 60 minute man where uh it's, it's an r&b song but uh the, the the lyrical preoccupation of rock and roll is already laid down by those guys you know this is basically singing about sex. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, it's actually in movie lore. It's really famous. There's a a famous sex scene in the movie Bull Durham. Yeah, that is uh, that is set to Sixty Minute Man yeah. uh, as well. So go check out that movie and yeah. and and it's there. But yeah, great song. It, yeah, it basically basically that's somewhere between Boogie Woogie and like Chuck Berry. Right. Well, now let us go into. The four artists we are going to profile as being yes. the real, you know, the badass early African American pioneers of rock and roll, and the first person we'll talk about is Fats Domino. Oh yeah, um, we've established how this beast called rock and roll came from the American South as an intense rocking variation of rhythm and blues. Uh, It's only fitting that New Orleans, the birthplace of jazz, would produce its own unique flavor of rhythm and blues. The rolling off-kilter grooves of the boogie-woogie piano maestro Professor Longhair helped define this thick, swampy, down-in-the-bayou sound of New Orleans rhythm and blues. But it was Fats Domino who gave a robust, muscular form to this thick, swampy sound and was arguably the first commercially successful, definitively R&B artist who crossed over to rock and roll and thus the pop charts. Don't believe that? Here's Elvis Presley himself. Quote, he was a real influence on me when I started out. He's the real king of rock and roll. Well, when the king of rock and roll calls this guy the real king of rock and roll, guess what? We're starting with this guy. (laughs) Um, Born Antoine Dominique Domino in New Orleans in 1928, he learned the piano at age 10. And by age 14, he was already performing in New Orleans bars. Uh, He got his first big break uh, when at 19, uh, he joined local great Billy Diamond's band. Uh, I don't know who Billy Diamond is, but he's really big in New Orleans. And uh, he he got tagged with the nickname Fats because Domino reminded Diamond of the legendary jazz pianist Fats Waller. And the other reason was, well, young Antoine liked to eat. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. The second and even bigger break was when he was signed as a solo artist in 1949 to Imperial Records, an indie label with major label distribution through Capitol and quickly put out his first single, The Fat Man, a much lyrically cleaner adaptation of Jack Dupree's 1940 tale of a drug addiction called Junker Blues. Uh, The song was a monster hit, peaking at number two on the R&B chart and selling one million copies within two years. Um, Chris, you mentioned some of the songs uh, uh, that you mentioned as the earliest rock and roll singles. To this day, there are quite a few who debate that this is the first rock and roll single slash song. 
Um, yeah. if, if so, it's also the first rock and roll single to go platinum. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. I mean, for, for 1949, I mean, it's extraordinary because it has that bottom end. It's right. kind of like, a, it's, it's like the slowest, uh, form of boogie woogie, but it has this, this bottom end and it has this soul right. and, uh, it, it really does just kind of rock and it has that kind of, you know, with, you know, Domino was just a genius. Uh, he, you know, he wasn't the showiest piano player. It wasn't like Jerry Lee Lewis, right? But yeah. he just had, he got a sound and a resonance from it. And between that and his voice, I mean, pretty much everything Fats Domino was on like the low end of the register. Yeah, you know? yeah. It was like low on top of low on top of low on top of low, and it was just awesome. Right. And right. so, yeah, for for that to be. Uh, him to be doing that in 1949 and in my mind is extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I guess things went in threes for Fats Domino because three sure. years later in 1952, he had his first R&B number one single with Going Home. Three years later in 1955, he had the biggest break of his career when the gorgeous R&B masterpiece, Ain't That a Shame, not only hit number one on the R&B chart, but climbed as high as number 10 on the pop singles chart. Uh, Domino was now a superstar, was being called a rock and roll singer, and was touring on package tours with other R&B rock and roll artists and playing to mixed race audiences. Uh, for those of you out there who need no more than five Fats Domino songs for your Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube Plus playlists, here are two more to complete your set. The lovely loping Blueberry Hill which hit number two on the Billboard pop chart in 1956, and the rockin' stomper I'm Walkin', which hit number four on the Billboard pop chart in 1957. The man is an absolute legend, and he should be remembered more. The next seminal person we have to talk about, Bo Diddley. Now, oh, while, yeah. Bo, while Bo Diddley didn't have like the pop chart success of the other three, artists that we're highlighting in this episode, he was every bit as important as them and arguably maybe even a little more important in regard to the transitioning of R&B into rock and roll. Diddley's importance wasn't in his pop chart success nor in his songwriting skills, but more than anything else, it was his sound. You know, oh, yeah. Diddley created a new, never-before-heard soundscape for R&B by incorporating African rhythms and a five-accent clave beat. You all know it. Chink, 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 That clave beat is common in all Afro-Cuban and Cuban-derived Latin music. Uh, the result, you know, mambo, salsa, you name it, they all have that beat. And uh, the result was a loud, primal, primitive, overwhelmingly sexually charged, swinging, eminently danceable form of rhythm and blues that was so powerful in its scope that if it isn't pure rock and roll in its essence, then I really don't know what else is. In the short term, his influence stretched to Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly. In the middle term, it stretched out to the Beatles and more prominently to the Rolling Stones. In the long term, you could hear impact the impact of Bo Diddley on Led Zeppelin and even The Clash. Uh, born Ellis Bates in Macomb, Mississippi in 1928. Uh, that's, 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 how, that's, how, that's Bo Diddley's real name. Um, unable to support a family, his mother gave young Ellis up to her cousin and eventually... Uh, he was adopted by his mom's cousin's family and he adopted the name McDaniel. So he became 
young Ellis McDaniel and his family. They moved to Chicago when he was five years old. Until his mid-teenaged years, he played violin as part of his church congregation until uh, the pulsating rhythms of rhythm and blues and R&B intoxicated and led him to switch to guitar. Uh, in later years, uh, Diddley attributed the trance-like rhythms in his music to the highly musical church gatherings of his youth uh, in Chicago. When Diddley would go on to claim John Lee Hooker as a chief influence, it's no surprise. Uh, Hooker's brand of blues was incessantly rhythmic and had hints of incantation, hearkening back to old black spiritual music, which itself hearkened back to traditional African rhythms. Uh, it was with a repertoire of Hooker and Muddy Waters songs that Diddley graduated from playing street corners and markets as a teenager with a pickup band to playing clubs in his early 20s in Chicago's Southside with his nascent band to being discovered by Chess Records in said clubs and being signed to a record deal. Yes, the same Chess Records that at the time had Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Chuck Berry, and Etta James on its roster now had yeah. Bo Diddley. Wow. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, now, how the hell did Ellis McDaniel get the name Bo Diddley? Uh, there are conflicting stories. Uh, Diddley himself added to that conflict, saying his R&B peers gave that name to him as a rib, with a Diddley being a truncation of Diddley squat, meaning nothing. You know, you ain't Diddley squat. You know, um, he also said that the name belonged to a singer whom his adoptive mother knew. He also said that he got that name from his high school classmates when he was part of a local community boxing club. A more tantalizing possibility implies that young Mr. Diddley was a well-read chap, for there is a short story called Black Death, written by the great Harlem Renaissance author Zora Neale Hurston in 1921, which depicts a womanizer called Bo, B-E-A-U, Diddley, who impregnates a woman, refuses responsibility for the child, and meets his punishment at the and fate at the hands of a voodoo witch doctor. Yeah, Whatever that, pretty it is. Much, that pretty much sounds like every Bo Diddley song from the late 50s, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? It does. <laughs> Whatever yeah. the origin, the name Bo Diddley stuck, and it was also the title of his first single. Yes, he named his first song after himself, <laughs> which was released in 1955 and skyrocketed to number one on the R&B chart. His intense, primal signature sound already intact, Diddley would go on to have a consistent 50-year career before he died in 2008, but it's his singles in the 1950s that are the greatest distillation of his greatness and influences. For uh, your streaming playlists out there, folks, in addition to the song Bo Diddley, also check out Pretty Thing from 1955, number one and number four in the R&B chart. His most popular song, Who Do You Love, from 1956, made famous by George Thorogood in 1978, and Mona, I Need You Baby from 1957, popularized by the Rolling Stones on their 1965 album, The Rolling Stones Now. Chris? Yeah, and you also have to remember, like, Diddley doesn't get credit. He was a hell of a blues man, too. And yeah. I think his other most famous song besides Who Do You Love is I'm a Man. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, will be licensed from now until the end of time. And actually is covered by, of all people, Muddy Waters in yeah. uh, 
the band's the last waltz. Uh, so, you know, he could, he could play it straight, but, uh, the, and it, 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 it really is kind of uh, funny. And, and, you know, like you said, a lot of, a lot of diddly, like when he did his interviews, very charismatic, but it, it was hard to tell when he was playing it straight and when he was pulling your leg. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he, I think he had this kind of jovial, uh, kind of kidding sense of humor. Very, very smart guy. Like one of the greatest interview, you know, he was a, just a tr- tremendous interview. Uh, speaking of which, if you go on YouTube, there was an old show at maybe like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, called uh, Speaking Freely. It was about First Amendment issues, but uh, Diddley went on there and, you know, the hosts asks him, you know, where's the Bo Diddley beat come from? Come from? And well, first thing he says is a lot of people think it's just a, you know, it's just a, a play on handbone. It's like, not, you know, and then he kind of jokes around, handbone goes like this, dun, 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 and where his mind is, dun, 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 dun. Uh, but, and he does mention the African religious chant, but he also tells a story, which is hilarious that, uh, he says that he's just messing around in a rehearsal one day and, you know, he was big into country music at the time and he's just messing around. He's trying to play, uh, uh, jingle, jangle, jingle (laughs) by, uh, Gene Autry. You know, I have spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle, uh, and he just, it went spectacularly wrong and it it became this sort of, you know, uh, this, that skittering, you know, like you said, that five note, uh, kind of, you know, dun, 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 it became that. And he said, well, you know, guys, let's, we should, we should work with this. Now that might be bullshit, but it's a, it, that that's pretty funny that Gene Autry might've been the forerunner to the Bo Diddley beat, uh, mm. you know, when, when you think about it. Uh, but, um, you know, to me, Diddley, when I was thinking about this episode, uh, what James Brown is to the one, uh, Bo Diddley is to the four. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's really kind of the, the cadence of it. It's like it ascends on one, two, three, and then dips suddenly on four. You're right. And it has this kind of like, it's almost hypnotic yeah. in, in in the way that, that he does that. And like you said, uh, throughout history, and like, you know, I mean, we don't have time, but I'll give you one example. The Bo Diddley beat shows up in all kinds of songs in all kinds of genres all throughout rock and roll history. Sure. A good example of it is she's the one by Springsteen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and he even acknowledges that, that, that that's a Bo Diddley beat. So, and I, you know, even the beach boys like employed a, 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 a Bo Diddley beat a time, uh, a time or two, but like I said, engaging guy uh, had the coolest looking guitar ever, you know, that, uh, that rectangle, Mm. Uh, thing yeah yeah it's yeah. like this this long neck with a with a rectangle body that had this like awesome sound and and he was one of these guys like a self-taught engineer and uh you know he tells a story on that th- that same interview with speaking freely that you know he had this chance to uh you know cut a record for you know his label there you know like submit this but he all, all he had was he had an old uh, uh, like seventy eight vinyl, and he experimented with it. And he found some lacquer, mm. and he lacquered both sides of this existing vinyl, and he figured out that he could cut new grooves wow. uh, into the vinyl. And so he recorded uh, Bo Diddley and I'm a Man <laughs> as a demo wow. for his uh, for his label. Uh, like re- basically by lacquering somebody else's record, wow, and recording on and and putting it on top of that, which is kind of an amazing uh, story. So yeah, uh, amazing guy. Uh, 
you're right. Didn't have as much commercial success as he deserved. Um, he's probably made more money dead than he ever made alive because of licensing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is too bad. <laughs> it's a lot of people. So, well, speaking yeah. of someone who did make a lot of money in his oh, time, yeah. we move on to little Richard. Woo! Where do we start with him? Um, (laughs) his personal life alone has such an epic scope that that it could take up an entire episode you know you have this very effeminate gay black man who grew up in the segregated south in the 1940s and spent most of his life toggling between indulging his sexuality in the kinkiest fashions sex orgies spying on guys in bathrooms yada yada between that and finding Jesus and being a minister and spending most of the 1970s absolutely ripped on cocaine and PCP. (laughs) But and heroin and heroin, but let's focus on the music. Shall we? Uh, while little Richard made an impact on the national consciousness at around the same time as Elvis Presley, he had been kicking around in the music scene for years before Elvis and was putting out records as early as 1951. Uh, it was around this time that he not only made a name for himself on the Chitlin circuit, but also in underground gay nightclubs throughout the South. Uh, before this, after he left home as a teenager, he was born Richard Wayne Penniman in Macon, Georgia in 1932. Uh, he got his start playing minstrel shows, vaudeville type shows and tent revivals all while wearing outlandish costumes and dressed in drag. Uh, These years of experience with tough crowds uh, resulted in Richard's brand of R&B, eventually called and referred to as rock and roll, being the most outrageous, flamboyant, decadent, and explosive of any of the genre's founding fathers that we've mentioned here. Um, In his peak years, he also employed a rich horn section that was the perfect counterpoint to his wailing vocals. And oh my God, that voice. Um, He he was by far the best singer of this early rock and roll era. And to this day, he's still arguably one of rock's five greatest all-time vocalists. Oh, no, Um, no doubt. No doubt. um, I mean, check the, uh, the just the list of people who just owe their lives to this guy. The Beatles were always extremely open about their love of Little Richard and how he influenced them, especially in the early days. Both James Brown and Otis Redding idolized him. Ike Turner once claimed that Tina Turner's vocal delivery was based on Richard's. Uh, in Bob Dylan's senior year school book in 1959, he mentioned that his main ambition was to be the keyboardist in Little Richard's band. D- <laughs> Dylan's, Dylan's snarky humor for sure, but he did sincerely admire him. Uh, Jimi Hendrix once said, who by the way was part of Little Richard's touring band in the mid-60s, once said that he wanted to do with the guitar what Richard did with his voice. Both Bob Seger and John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival admitted to being in awe of him growing up. Michael Jackson admitted to Richard being a big influence on him pre-Off the Wall. Prince practically took his early androgynous look and vocal style from Little Richard. Mick Jagger once said Richard was his introduction to R&B music and called him, quote, the originator and my first idol. Uh, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin once said he wasn't interested in music until he heard Little Richard for the first time when he was 13. 
David Bowie is quoted as saying that when he heard Little Richard for the first time, he thought he heard the voice of God. Mm. Uh, Elton John has repeatedly said he was inspired to play piano after hearing Little Richard. Lou Reed called Little Richard, quote, his rock and roll hero. The vocals of Ian Gillen from Deep Purple would be unimaginable without the influence of Little Richard. The outrageous flamboyance and vocal histrionics of Queen's Freddie Mercury would be unimaginable without Little Richard's influence. Angus Young of ACDC once said his signature guitar style was developed by trying to imitate the sound of Richard's voice. That's what Angus Young was trying to do with guitar. Lemmy mm-hmm. Kilmeister of Motorhead worshipped him. The list goes on and on. For you streamers out there, here are the hits from 1955 to 58. The incredible Tutti Frutti, number two on the R&B chart, number 18 in the pop chart. Side note, the opening verses, Tutti Frutti, All Rudy, Tutti Frutti, All Rudy, were, according to Little Richard's drummer at the time, Charles Connor, quote, Tutti Frutti, good booty, if it's right, if it's tight, it's all right, And if it's greasy, it makes it easy. Yes, folks, Tutti Frutti was mid-20th century Southern black slang for anal sex. And he had a huge hit for it. That's rock and roll, baby. Uh, Long Tall Sally, the song that almost every single British rock group in the early 1960s covered, reached number one in the R&B chart and number six on the pop chart. Rip It Up, number one R&B, number 17 pop. Jenny Jenny, number two R&B, number 10 pop. Keep a Knockin', number two R&B, number eight pop. And finally, the immortal Good Golly Miss Molly, number two R&B, number eight pop. The man was and still in death is an American treasure. Chris? Yeah, Good Golly Miss Molly, otherwise known as Traveling Band by CCR, which Little Richard made sure to sue uh, John Fogarty over, uh, for sure. Yeah, Little Richard is extraordinary, uh, just not only even as a musician, but just as a story. Uh, you also forgot Lucille. Oh, yeah. That's his best song. Yeah. Lucille is an incredible song. Yeah. But the thing about with, with Little Richard, uh, it's the flamboyance, it's the showmanship, it's the voice. It's the not electricity as in like plugged in guitars. Just he he was an electric performer. Uh, the charisma, all of that. Anybody who ever wanted to just kind of primp and preen and be a lead man on a stage owes everything to Little Richard. I mean, Little Richard's the front man of all front men. Uh, he kind of invented, uh, or he's the icon of of that uh, whole thing. Uh, like I said, incredible singer. Uh, there's just, uh, again, a lot of influences there. Uh, he's probably the least boogie woogie influenced of these guys. Uh, he's more, there's, there, there's some element of, of jazz to some of his stuff and big band and, uh, just, you know, straight, also just straight rhythm and, and blues. Um, but like I said, he's an interesting story. Well, first off, by the way, so his band in the mid sixties, not only had Hendrix in it, but Billy Preston. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, great stories that I, in researching this episode. So Hendrix, uh, you know, uh, basically the only one in Richard, uh, Little Richard's band that was allowed to be flamboyant was Little Richard. Yeah. 
<laughs> and boy, little Richard hated Hendrix because Hendrix would like wear those shirts and like little Richard be like, fuck that, you know, change your shirt, you know, or, or the way he'd play guitar. No, you, you can't smile up here, you know? And so yeah. needless to say, Hendrix wasn't in the band all that long and, you know, and he hated the experience. So, uh, absolutely influential, but he was a gay man who was beaten by his dad and thrown out of his house for not being man enough when he's 13 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he comes from that abusive background. And yeah, he did have this tension between gospel and anti-gospel. So he gets big in the 50s and obviously gets decadent with the orgies and, and all of that. And then he decides that, you know, he finds... He, well, he said in an interview at that point he was Jewish, uh, which it's kind of hard to believe. He said that in a BBC interview in 1972, but he was just inspired. So he ended up going to a Bible college somewhere in Alabama uh, and spent like, you know, a couple years doing that. And then he was doing gospel for a few years, but inevitably found his way back to rock and roll uh, because there was interest in his stuff in Europe. And so he went back to that. And like you said, Art, by the 70s, he had kind of completely just decided to just lose it. And he just became like, yeah, he was on all kinds of drugs. You know, he, he was doing sexapalooza, drugapalooza, you know, decadent palooza and all of that. But then he had a streak in the, and there's a fascinating interview. If you want to find this, it, uh, he appeared on Letterman in 82. And this was during one of his cleaned up phases when he was uh, finding and espousing the Lord. But he tells the story in that, that within like a couple year period in the late seventies, he lost four people to drugs, including his brother Mm. at a party. And like his brother OD'd at a party that he was at with him. And so he decided to clean up and, you know, he goes on on, uh, Letterman and, you know, he's in a suit and no makeup and, you know, no wig and the Afro and, it's little Richard. I mean, he's talking like little Richard. He has the same sense of humor, but he even says that he spent most of his life gay, but now he's, you know, found the glory of Christ. Yeah. yeah. And uh, proceeds to sing uh, one day at a time, sweet Jesus. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that didn't last. And, and then I think he spent the rest of his uh, life kind of just confused where he would go back and forth between his accepting himself. And sometimes I think maybe he still, you know, stayed with the Lord, but would put the makeup on to go make some money. Right. And then at the very end of his life, he, you know, because he grew up, uh, the religious tradition he grew up with is Seventh-day Adventist. 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 Right. And uh, he kind of went back in that direction in his 80s, and he showed up on a, I've Indiana, like some sort of like televangelism network a couple of times to make appearances talking about how he's come to Jesus and rejected everything that he's done. And, you know, it, it, he, it's like, he's proud of his work, but he rejects the kind of stuff that it stood for. But in the meantime, he's wearing like purple suits and glittery shoes. So (laughs) like I said, so you, you can take the man out of the gay, but you can't take the gay out of the man. Uh, And that was kind of the thing. So it's just that tension and back and forth. So so fascinating personal story, but just singular talent, uh, who also had a chip on his shoulder. I mean, he spent like, what, 60 years telling everybody about how he invented rock and roll and how he got screwed out of money and how he was the real king. And, you know, everybody should bend over and kiss his ass. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, amazing, amazing character. And without him, uh, you you know, our next guy, basically, you could say kind of invented rock and roll as we know it and as it became popularized. But without Little Richard, you don't get rock and roll because just because of the showmanship and the charisma. 
Right. Well, speaking of showmanship and charisma, this next guy, our final guy for this episode, had it in spades. Chuck Berry. Um, He is perhaps the most unique and maybe the most influential of all these guys, although the ghost of Little Richard would have something to say about that. (laughs) Um, uh, Chuck Berry's chief contributions to the development of rock and roll are twofold. First, there are the guitar riffs. More than any of the other early African-American pioneers, Barry, uh, he sped up R&B guitar riffs, brought them front and center, and practically invented what we now think of when we think of the rock guitar intro riff. Without this, there are no Rolling Stones, no Who, no Led Zeppelin, no nothing. Right. Um, second and most un- underrated of all is Barry's lyrical storytelling. Um, here is where Barry showed the influence of country music more than any of the other black pioneers. Uh, Barry's songs always told a story, whether they were about young men running away from their current conditions and pursuing a life of music and fun, sometimes with the cops in pursuit, <laughs> or lusting after underage girls, a recurring theme in some of Barry's lyrics. Yeah. Uh, generally, though, Barry wrote specifically about the desires of young people. Teen dances, romance, fast cars, high school life, and overall consumer culture. If rock and roll got big when it was promoted to young people, it was Barry who wrote about them, wrote to them, and wrote for them. Um, His influence is immeasurable. Uh, This podcast's favorite music critic, Robert Criscow, quote, he is the greatest of rock and rollers. John Lennon, quote, If you give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry. Uh, Ted Nugent, quote, if you don't know every Chuck Berry lick, you cannot play rock guitar. Bob Dylan, quote, he's the Shakespeare of rock and roll. Bruce Springsteen, quote, Chuck Berry was rock's greatest practitioner, guitarist, and the greatest pure rock and roll writer who ever lived. Leonard Cohen, quote, all of us are footnotes to the words of Chuck Berry. Listen, man, when Dylan calls you Shakespeare and Springsteen says you're the greatest pure writer, you know you're fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, for all you streamers and playlist lovers out there, here are the hits from 1955 to 58. Uh, same time span as Little Richard, by the way. Maybelline, number one on the R&B chart, number five on the pop chart. School Day, Ring Ring Goes the Bell, number one R&B, number three pop. Rock and roll music, which would be covered brilliantly later in a few years by the Beatles, number six R&B and number eight pop. Sweet Little Sixteen, number one R&B, number two pop. And of course, Barry's signature song, Johnny Be Good, number two R&B, number eight pop. Not a single early rock and roll pioneer has been covered by more bands and artists than Chuck Berry. I mentioned the Beatles. They also covered Roll Over Beethoven. Who else covered Chuck Berry? Let's see. Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly. Practically the half of the Rolling Stones' entire early repertoire <laughs> is Chuck mm-hmm. Berry songs. Yep. Jimi Hendrix. The Beach Boys stole the melody from Sweet Little 16 for Surfing USA. Uh, practically a cover. Electric Light Orchestra, ACDC, Rod Stewart in the Faces, David Bowie, The Yardbirds, The Kinks, The Grateful Dead, Fish. 
They all covered Chuck Berry. The man is a god. Chris? Yeah, he's, I think, the most singular genius in the history of rock and roll. Uh, and here's the incredible thing about Barry. Uh, he was in his thirties, his early thirties. He was he, a late bloomer. He was a late. Bloomer. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. Like he spent, I think the good part of his twenties, I think working in an auto factory. He's from St. Louis. Yeah. Uh, and so like St. Louis, East St. Louis, and he would cut his teeth in bands there. Uh, and I saw, and I did a bunch of research. He did a interview with Neil Strauss and, uh, Rolling Stone in like 2010. And he did some stuff with Robert Hilburn in the LA times back in the eighties. Basically he, uh, he didn't live any of the stuff he wrote about. Yeah. And a lot of it was just, he was just a perfectionist and a professional. He was just his professionalism and he just had this talent and it, it's like, okay, so, you know, if I'm writing for young people and there's this, and he said he chose rock and roll cause that's where the money was. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and so it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, kids going to school, I'll, I'll write about school or, you know, cars will, will do that or, you know, rebellion. Okay. You know, young love. Okay. Well, you know, we'll, we'll do that. And, uh, he would do it. And so, and then not only that, but there's like a simple genius to him too. And so like, I think you said, he's like the, sort of the more countryish. Uh, the most countryish of these guys that, yeah, he, he incorporated boogie woogie and a lot of his songs are 12 bar blues. Yeah. Uh, you know, but they're so clever in the way that they use those 12 bars. He's got that kind of twang and kind of, you know, uh, like subtle wink, wink joy of country uh, music. And I guess what it came out of is, you know, he would go to these shows, uh, he would perform these shows and you'd it'd be segregated audiences, all the blacks on the left and all the white kids on the right. And he was just kind of playing like, I have a chance to introduce uh, folks. And so it was really showmanship where he would kind of mix in the country with the rhythm and blues, because then like the white kids are all vibing on the rhythm and blues and the black kids are all vibing on the country. And yeah. so it was just very simple uh, stuff like that. And I also believe that Barry is the single best lyricist in the history of rock and roll, including Bob Dylan. Hmm. Uh, some of his stuff is just so brilliant and like, so it's economical and it just, he, the way he's able to fit it into, you know, his riffs and his, and sort of his, his structure uh, is remarkable. I mean, here's a couple of uh, my favorites uh, from, from his uh, thing. Cause he, he was very clever and very subtle and you know, very subversive. Uh, so uh, here's a here's a verse from the song "Brown Eyed Handsome Man." Uh, Marlo Venus was a beautiful lass. She had the world in the palm of her hand. She lost she lost both her arms in a wrestling match to meet a brown eyed handsome man. She fought and won herself a brown eyed handsome man, which essentially is him. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from beautiful Delilah. Uh, which is a wonderful story song. Uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, a, it's, it's a really kind of a great punchline or it's like a setup for a joke. Like each verse is a setup for the same joke uh, where he says, a beautiful Delilah bathing in the sun, an audience of 17 and notice not a one local Casanova who wouldn't be outdone. Let her steal his heart away, break it just for fun. And then the course, Rebecca, don't allow me to fool around with you. You are so tantalizing. You just can't be true. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I just think just kind of kind of funny that he's like rejecting Rebecca to get at Delilah. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, 
yeah. And so, but that was the kind of stuff he did. And like you said, he was a storyteller and like even like Maybelline, uh, you know, it, Maybelline is a country song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, just pure, pure and simple, but you know, but even Barry, you know, obviously uh, he also had the showmanship. So he was a professional in terms of his songwriting uh, genius as a guitar player, obviously, you know, John Lennon, uh, basically his guitar playing style was just Chuck Berry, pure and simple. Yeah. You know, two strings over the top. And it was just, you know, it was basically just, and Keith Richards, obviously, uh, huge, uh, hugely influenced by Barry, but the showmanship too, where he would go out there in those ridiculous outfits with the, uh, you know, the pink shirts with the, the, the black bolos and, uh, you know, with the, you know, the greased up kind of conch hair and, yeah. you know, obviously most famous for the duck walk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, as he, you know, when he started performing in the 70s, he had those ridiculous outfits where he would have the the blue blazer and the captain's hat. Yeah. And okay. stuff like that. And then like his sense of humor kept like getting sharper. Uh, uh, I don't know. If, have you heard this? He had a, a album in 1968 uh, called Concerto in Be Good. Mm. And uh, the song Concerto in Be Good is basically like 17 minute it's like the same rhythm, but him just jamming to this like electric, uh, electronic rhythm. It's, it's really just kind of, uh, uh, fascinating. And yeah, you know, he, he had his peccadillos, you know, he had his legal issues, which I'm sure you'll talk about in a second in terms of, uh, getting in trouble, uh, messing around with, uh, uh overly young women. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, he, yeah, he's a complicated guy. He's known uh, for being really, really prickly, uh, uh Keith Richards quote that I found that, that says, I love his work, but I couldn't warm to him. Even if I was cremated next to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is really funny. And well, uh, also, I mean, there, he, he, in his book, uh, Keith Richards in his uh, autobiographies memoir, he mentions that the reason Chuck Berry was so prickly and such a you know, kind of a dick to some people is that he came up in an era where white concert promoters would screw artists over all oh, the yeah. freaking time. Oh, and he uh, says that in that Hilburn interview that he yeah. just like learned to be distrustful early. Right. And like uh, to the point where Barry became famous for like being paid in cash up front. Yep. <laughs> you know, I, you can trust me to come up and play more than, than I can trust you to pay me. You know, that's kind of like yeah. his mentality. Um, yeah, so, so, so that in one ways is understandable, but he, he's also been, he's, he's had his problems, you know, uh, with the law. Um, like I said, you mentioned the whole thing. Uh, we'll mention it in the next episode is one of the signifiers of the death of this early phase of rock and roll was, uh, him getting busted, having a relationship with a 14 year old girl and crossing her, uh, uh, across, going across state lines. Yep. Um, the man act. Yeah. Yep. Which is stupid law. But anyway, he got busted for that. Um, he also got in trouble uh, when he his his house got raided, and they found videotapes of women, one of whom was a minor. Um, in this in this raid, they also found marijuana. Um, so he was he was he he got he got brought up on felony drug and child abuse charges. The child abuse charges were dropped, but he pled guilty to the marijuana. Um, later, like I think I think maybe like uh, toward the end of his life. There were videos that were that were that, that surfaced, uh, videos of Chuck Berry urinating on a woman and another of a woman defecating on him. <laughs> he was into Yummy. some kinky shit. 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I can't verify this, but uh, there's another story too. Apparently, he owned a club in St. Louis. That oh he equipped, yeah, yeah. Where he he equi- he equipped the uh, the women's bathroom stalls with cameras so he he could watch him uh, taking a tinkle. He was into shit and piss stuff. It's weird, man. Yeah. This guy was yeah. But yeah, he yeah. yeah he definitely had those things, and you know, well maybe maybe he always was a freaky deaky guy, but the the yeah. fame gave him gave him the the excuse and the avenue to do it to indulge in it. Right? Oh yeah, and yeah, and again, you know, he also had this thing too that he, uh, I think he was a, a a dropout, a high school dropout, but he had to like prove, like he had this thing about proving that he was the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, and so like, really well read, and that's why his his lyrics, you know, they have that economy, but they also have this literateness to them uh, as well. Right. So yeah, yeah no, uh, Barry, uh, like these other those other guys that we mentioned, you know, they they had, you know, they were formative and they had their own input. But Barry, man, he, you know, uh, in the dictionary under rock and roll, it's Chuck Berry doing the duck walk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, you know, point, point, plain and simple. And so, yeah, those guys are the four bearers of rock and roll. Those four guys, Fats, uh, Little Richard, uh, Bo Diddley and uh, uh, Chuck Berry. On Chuck Berry, by the way, uh, the album that the the essential starting point is The Great 28, Mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, up there with uh, Star Time uh, as probably the greatest comp record of all time. Yeah, it's basically got it's, it's basically the, the the great twenty eight Chuck Berry's twenty eight best songs basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, not quite. I mean, you know, like uh, you never can, you never can tell was not yeah. on there, and there's right. a few others, but uh, and yeah, and well, it, it these were all before he did my dingling. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, my dingling because nineteen seventy two, that's his biggest hit, his number one hit, <laughs> number one pop, yeah. a song about his cock. Went number yes. one. <laughs> yes. In 1972, that, that, that was his biggest hit, uh, you know. But anyway, uh, God bless you, Chuck, and God bless, you know, hail, hail rock and roll. Yes. And our next episode will be part two in the final uh, uh, episode of this very mini-series, The First Golden Age of Rock. And basically what we're going to talk about is rock crossing over to the mainstream, i.e., white people getting into it <laughs> and uh and the other you know the, some other great rock and roll artists of this time period how it crossed over to the mainstream how it happened what happened and then how it seemingly died for a little while um it will come back to life later on in the 1960s thanks to uh, these four guys from Liverpool England who would you know resurrect it <laughs> but yep. um in the meantime, it crossed over to the mainstream, how it seemingly died, what happened, and the legacy of basically um, of, of, of basically the white mainstream appropriating black music. So that's what we're going to touch on into uh, the next episode. And with that, folks, rock on. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. And so as we always uh, end these episodes with, uh, yes, definitely. Uh, if you agree with anything we said, disagree with anything you said, if we went on a little too strongly, hit us up at uh, uh, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, you can visit us on Twitter. Uh, we've been pretty active up there lately. Uh, our handle is at curmudgeonpod. Although, uh, maybe we could get an uh, an $8 uh, blue check mark, and then there'll be like, you know, 20 other curmudgeon pod uh, accounts too. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if you read about that, but that's that's a thing now because of Elon Musk. 
And then uh, finally, we would love you to join our Facebook uh, community, the curmudgeonly community on Facebook. Uh, We've got some pretty loyal members there. uh, Facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Uh, we're there. And then also we'll be making a Spotify playlist and then putting that up there uh, for this episode uh, as well. Uh, excited about that because it's going to be probably about the best mix we've uh, made to date. So uh, 